Hi, this is Holzoo Mark Show, and the following is excerpts of a book by Jonathan Downs called Monster Hunter. Prologue. Welcome to Las Vegas, Nevada. Fear and loathing a hundred miles north of Las Vegas. Whilst his mother's womb contained the growing bowel, even then the sky was waiting quiet and pale, naked young, immensely marvellous like bowel. I loved it when he came to us. That same sky remained with joy him with him in joy and care, even when Bob slept peacefully and unaware. At night at the lilac sky a drunken bowl turning pious as the sky turns growth pale. So through hospital cathedral whiskey's bar, Bell kept moving towards um, kept moving onwards, just let things go. A bow fight, boys, cannot fail far. He will have his son down there below. Bernard Beach bows him. Night falls quickly in the Nevada desert. The sun, which for twelve hours had scorched a burning red earth below, had vanished behind the grim, unyielding mountains. In that strange time of twilight, which the people in Devonshire called the Dipsy, the desert creatures that had stayed hidden for the, hot, for the hottest parts of the day began to stir, and what to the casual visitors seemed to be a barren wilderness soon came a haven of activity. The rats, the mice, and the frogs emerged from their holes, secure in the knowledge that for a few hours at least they would be relatively safe from large animals like raccoons and coyotes, and blissfully unaware that in the sky above them circled the night birds searching for supper. I am a zoologist. I should be, by rights, have been in, out in the desert gazing in all, like the miracle of God's creation. I wasn't. I was sitting in an air-conditioned bar a few hundred yards away. I was surrounded by scantily clad girls and a group of genial people that ranged from the mildly eccentric to the assertively insane. But who all exuded the air of its of expensive Bohemic common to the west coast Africans of a certain class 
and a certain age. I was very drunk and spending most of my energy on a fruitless fruitless attempt to seduce a plump blonde to all seen in the late forties, whom, it was whispered, was the ex-wife of a famous television producer who was responsible for some of the most tardy science fiction TV shows of the previous thirty years. It was my fortieth birthday party and congratulations were not necessarily in order. I'm not a prude. Indeed, far from it. Like the eponymous hero of Bernard Breach's Bell, I spent large portions of my life in a reasonably successful search for fun. The quest for wine, women and song has taken up a large proportion of my life in a reasonably successful search for fun. Quest for wine, women, and song was taking a large portion of my life, particularly more the quest for whatever it, would, it is that passes the, the truth. But there, are, there was something about this place that unnerved me. It was a pleasure place, a place where one could gamble, drink, and chase members of the opposite sex. 24 hours a day. Drinks were free as long as you at least pretended to gamble. And there was a continued smoke of luxurious, ingestible and tempting food there for the taking. It was a party city. It was sent reads oasis, oasis. Oasis, a casino and golfing resort in the middle of the Nevada desert. It was no coincidence it was situated in the town of Miscreet, a few miles from the border with the Mormon state of Utah. The worthies of Utah needed somewhere to go and let their hair down after a lifetime of abidious morality. Say, read. However, he had been had chosen wisely. It was a perfect location and a perfect holiday resort for people who couldn't afford Las Vegas. This was Babylon. Constant search for fun was beginning to pale. There's a limit to the amount of free lobster and bourbon that even I am able to consume. And whilst the drunken revelers, whom only known for a few days, were Parting like it was 1999, it was 1999, and celebrating the birthday of a fat Jew from Blighty, as if they'd known him for years, I slipped away into a dark corner of the bar, where I sat down and tried to decide whether I wanted to go to bed like a gentleman or carry on drinking. I hardly noticed her thin figure in a long coat that skizzled up to me. Mind if I sit down? He drawled. Hardly say no. Anyway, I didn't want to. He introduced himself as Reuben and sat impeccably, stared impeccably at me and without blinking. I had seen him around at the conference all week, but he wasn't, hadn't exchanged more than a few words. And I had been too busy passing, trying to get 
laid and doing my best to avoid constant panic attacks which beset me every time I was sober enough to remember that I was no longer in my safe haven of my own centre of Futon zoology back in suburban Exeter. Reuben was somehow somebody different from the flying saucer obsessed true believers that I had been meeting and partying with a week. Even in conventional UFO circles, I'm somewhat of a Luddite. By the standards of the International UFO Congress of Nevada during the summer of 1999, what I had to say was a tangent to apopsisy. I was in the United States to talk about and shamelessly plug my book, The Rising of the Moon, Doma, 1999, and that contained the results of some of my research into the cause course of it links that apparently existed between despot former Fultonian phenomenon. My hypotheses had very little to do with the ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-ultra-
Various things which I had included in my free box in good faith had turned about to be spurious, and if the truth is to be told, after five years of solid investigation of the subject, I really had enough. I wanted a break, and the only reason I had come to America, apart from the free holiday, was essentially to flog as many copies of my book as I could. As I knew my relationship with my then publisher was in its terminal stages, and I wanted to make as much money as I could out of my work, out of my hard work, before I went belly up. I couldn't say that to Ruben, could I? After all, despite his timeless representation of and gentle southern manners, he was still a total stranger that I had, I had met in a bar halfway across the world. Furthermore, he was a total stranger who had just shelled out twenty bucks for a copy of my book. What, what was worse, that he looked like an uncanny cross between an aging cowboy and a bass player in the Quicksilver Messenger Service. I tried to bluster my way out of it, but instead I essentially spluttered incomprehensibly as Ruben interrupted me. You need to get back to where you started, man, he said with a smile. You have a good talk. It's a good book. You're a nice guy, but until you go back to the beginning and make sure you believe in what you're writing, you'll never be happy. He smiled at me for the first time, and I swear that as the flashing, that as the flashing lights on the disco and the other were inflected in the mirror ceiling, the back lit him dramatically, and for a split second it appeared that he had a halo. It's your birthday, let me buy you a drink, he said. I left the table. You returned a few minutes later, and we drank in silence. We sat together like this, like this for at least about ten minutes, neither of us saying anything. I was rather drunk, but then, now and then, now, but now and then, we remind me of the highly fictional Lucas Long, a time-travelling hero of a series of novels by the late Robert Anson Hitkin. They had a, they had the same big nose, the same rugged features, and the same wild, staring eyes. No matter how you wish to, it feminine professes symbolism or argue world as myth. No getting away from the fact that Ludvig Long was a fictional character, that Ruben was still a guy who looked like the bass player in Quicksilver Messenger Service, who was still sitting at the table with me in a Nevada bar drinking whiskey. I know that you're hurting at the moment, he said, and you're still going to continue to hurt for a long time. It's going to get worse before it gets better. You'll get there eventually. He got up to leave, slightly taken aback. So, so I did thought. So, so did I. Thought for a minute that he was going to give me a hug. He didn't. Instead, shook my hand and surprisingly, in a surprisingly formal way, "Happy birthday, son," he said, and disappeared 
into the stagnant darkness of the casino bar. I returned to the back bustle of, the, of my birthday party in the main section of the bar. My friends were still bar- dancing, drinking. I didn't think that anyone noticed that I had been away. I got another bourbon. I started to dance in what I imagined at the time was a highly sexy and sophisticated style, but it probably looked like a ridiculously frowning of a drunken and rather overweight porpoise. Nobody noticed. The party continued like it was 1999. Yes, it was still 1999. I continued with my fruitless, my fruitless attempts to seduce a fat, blonde ex-wife of famous television producer, and my friends and I danced the do- danced until dawn broke over the desert. As I said, I went back to my hotel room and the pink wings of the sun were just breaking over the sun red sandstone mess. Messier, as I staggered along, I was sing- I sang So through hospital, cathedral, whiskey bar, bow kept moving onwards and left things go, but bow tired boys well, cannot fail, for he will have his sky there below. I was disturbed by a pair of jackrabbits, finally beasts who looked like the result of an unfortunate act of miscreation between a stick insect and a domestic bunny. As I watched the frightful Lugamulfs scurry away, I took a puff of my cigarette and breathed in the fresh air. Truly, it was a good time to be alive. I never saw Ruben again, but knew that he was right. I had to go back to the beginning. Chapter 1 The Jewel and the Crown. In many ways, I was the luckiest man I know. I know that I want what I wanted to do with my life and I, since I was a small child. The downside is that although it, I was seven years old, I made this momentous discovery. It took 25 years before I was able to translate this dream into some sort of objective reality. I was raised in Hong Kong, the last jewel of the crown in the British, of the British Empire, on which the sun never set. In terms of the period of life timeline, it's a few minutes before dusk. I was a member of the last generation of children of the Empire. Even children a few years younger than me say that the old days of Hong Kong as the easternmost pinnacle of the Raj ended in the early 1970s when the doctrine of a null and semi-autonomous autocracy run over under strict imperialism was replaced by a policy of Diaphragm capitalism, which essentially held sway for the remainder of the British tenure of power in the region. During the late spring of 1968, I was eight years old. I was sitting in geography lesson at Peak School on Hong Kong Island. I was not a good pupil, and my school days were far more far from successful. 
But some, for some reason, this peculiar geography lesson remains fresh in my memory 36, later, 36 years later on. My teacher, Miss Alexander, a lady whom I cannot remember almost nothing apart from the fact she hailed from Northern Ireland and lived in the same block of flats as my family at Mount Austin Mansions, was explaining about the geography of Hong Kong. And it was only then, after having lived in Hong Kong for the whole of my conscious life, that I realised how small it was and began to be aware of the peculiar nature of the island in which I lived. By the time you are my age, said Mr. Alexander, Hong Kong, as you know it, will not exist any longer. This is an extraordinary concept for a nine-year-old to grasp. So I missed the next sentence while I grappled with it. Hong Kong is not a country itself, she continued. It's run by people in England, another island on the far side of the world, the other side of the world. I knew this, of course. My father worked in the unfathomable eternity of grown-ups, well, called the government. But it was only then that, as Alexander pointed out, the relative positions of Hong Kong and the United Kingdom on the map of the, of the world, large portion of which even then was coloured pink, I began to grasp at the distance involved. Grasp at the distances involved. As the park bell rang for the mid-morning break, Mrs. Under finished the lesson with the words that remained fresh in my mind. Nearly three decades later, Hong Kong is not a country. It's a crown colony. When you have boys or girls of your own, there won't be any colonies left, and you'll be able to tell them, your children you lived in a little piece of history, Mrs. Alexander added. For political reason, although Hong Kong was still legally a crown colony, it was going to be known as territory Somewhere in the middle of the decade, after Big Alexander's lesson, I was not aware of this political correct non non managed to morally offend one correspondent in a letter about sea servants in the South, South China Sea by referring to the colony of Hong Kong. It is, of course, now a special administrative region. SAR, or the People's Republic of China, not for re- but for reasons of etiquette, I use the term region, except from quoting directly from other so- another source of referring to Hong Kong, position of colonial history. The name really doesn't matter, a darn, because the place itself is always, will always remain, despite the exorcisms of communism, determinism, and urbanism, and pollution. The bamboo snakes will still live in the thickets, and people walking the hills will still see the scenery of poor, see the scurry paws of ferret badges disappear into the holes in the ground. The animals of Hong Kong, who care little for politics, will remain as asthmatic as asthmatic as possible as ever. For my early age, I was been interested in animals. From the point of view, Hong, Hong Kong was an ideal place to grow up. 
Whereas my counterparts in the United Kingdom would have been able to make do foxes, badgers and hedgehogs, I had the South China Seas as my playground and the entire continent of Asia as my hint my hinder land. I could see large stretches of tropical forest from my bedroom window and it was surrounded by exotic and beautiful wild creatures. My mother always claimed that the first word I spoke was zoo, as child Darwin's mother claimed exactly the same thing. I did know not whether to take this piece of nation come cougar surgeries or not. For a bit decades on it doesn't really matter what does matter is that I had a, remar- a remarkable childhood from a zoological point of view at least mostly because as far back as I can remember my mother used to read stories to me one of my favourites was the Jungle Book in those days Kipling Poe's had yet to be perverted and adulterated a black by a black cloud of Disney, and I travelled in the glorious stories of animals and men in the Indian subcontinent. My mother always encouraged me in my interest in natural history, and when I was five or six years old, she acquired a book written by J. A. K. Halliburton, titled "The Hong Kong Countryside." I still have today, and of all the thousands of books in my collection. It's probably the one I have read most over the years. Much of my joy, much to my joy, many animals, as described by Kipling, also lived in my own backyard. Hooded coopers and credits lurked in the undergrowth, surrounding surrounding the playground where I went every day after school. All the way through my school days, my mother had a mortal fear that I would be bitten by three those bitten by those poisonous snakes. But luckily for me, at least, it never happened. There was there were mongoos, not of the same species as the Ricky Ticky Tabby, but close enough. Porcupines, wild red dogs, or dolos. And every evening, if you went to the right, the right place, you could see the massive holds of dog-faced fruit bats venturing forth into the gathering dusk. Even a sheer can of beer, beer, bagger, have relatives in Hong Kong, and the last leopard was shot. In the late 1950s, there were reports of the tigers visiting the wild parts of New Territories every winter throughout the 1960s. It was truly a magical place for a young naturalist to grow up. As I got older, my interest in natural history grew, and I filled every inch of my bedroom with jam jars, shoeboxes, and fish tanks that all contained wild variety wide varieties of local fauna. Much to the eternal credit of my mother and our servant, Otim, I got away with it. I, I got away with it 
and over the years I learnt much about the husbandry of small creatures, something that stood me good stead throughout my adult life. My mother encouraged my interest in natural history and the written word, and ironically, on the same day that Mrs. Zander had so radically overthrown my worldview, my mother really frequently kicked into touch. Every Thursday she would go into town to play tennis at a vulnerable institution known as the Ladies' Recreation Club. After the game the tennis and a legendary lunch with her friends, she would go into the central library and get out library books. For my young my young brother and I, one day she found a book titled The Amazing Zoo of Dudley Drew. But a young boy forced to spend the day in bed with a cold. My numbly bored, he spent the day drawing pictures of fantastic animals. Although intricacies of the plot escaped me, the wonderful creatures came to life. I wandered around and wandered around his house. I came obsessed with this book. I talked about nothing for weeks until my parents had threatened me with having the book banned from the house if I don't shut up, didn't shut up. You would have thought that my mother would have learned her lesson after that, but no. When I came back from school, after my faithful geography lesson with Mrs. Alexander, I found that my mother had got me a book that would literally change my life. It was called Mirth and or Monster. It reached me to concept that there, there were indeed monsters living in the world, and furthermore, ones that were even more extraordinary than everything had been drawn by the young Dudley. This book introduced me to a lot less monster, to sea servants, to Yeti, to its North American cousin Bigfoot, and to the fears of Mugga, the brittle grey killer cat of East Africa, and to the mysterious beasts of the South American jungle. This is heady stuff for an eight-year-old. I read the book in one sitting. Had my tea and went to bed early and read it again. Next morning I woke up, my head and heart filled with a new determination. Going to be a monster hunter when I grow up, I announced at breakfast, and I meant it. I'm not going to rewrite history and pretend that my parents were wholeheartedly supportive of my childish outburst, because they wasn't. To my, to be quite honest, I can't remember what they said, but I can imagine, however, I was at age when children wanted to be astronauts or train drivers or soldiers, and my parents can easily be forgiven. For not taking me this monstrous, 
momentous and life-changing decision to seriously. Have the, the die had, was cast, and, and any chance of leading a normal life had gone completely out of the window. For weeks after my new discovery, monsters and mystery animals of all type dominated my thoughts. And together with a couple of my friends who were equally obsessed with the natural world, I made a map of immediate areas surrounding a block of flats in which I lived. On this map, we had plotted the places where birds had nested and we, where we knew that the large algamas, large chunky lizards with armoured scales and long tails lived in a place in a place in the thick woodland which was surrounded by the ruins of a hotel that had been bombed during the Second World War and where we knew there was a breeding colony of Hudson's porcupines. To this map was added a fair smidgen of wishful thinking and we mentally exaggerated a small colony of feral dogs which lived in one of the hillsides into a pack of wolves and spent our evenings and weekends combing the forest sides of Victoria Peak in search of fearsome tigers and leopards which we knew from helots that once lived there and which we were convinced, convinced still did Arrogantly, it turned out that Hong Kong was indeed a hotbed of monster hunting activity. There are indeed mystery animals living there, though my investigations still into them would not take concrete form for another 25 years. However, even at the age of eight, my monster hunting research was Startling, starting in earnest. My earliest investigation was into the foxes of Hong Kong, a local race of red fox, the Vermis Volma Holly, was, at least according to the accepted disciplines, extinct in the colony. However, one evening, some friends of my parents come around for drinks, I was astounded to hear one of them say that the evening before they had actually seen a fox peering over the low stone wall of their garden perimeter. These people, these people were unusual in Hong Kong. It was usual, well, unusual in Hong Kong expat society that they had a garden. Most of us, including my family, lived in large, opulent, and luxurious blocks of flats. These people. And since my mother's death, I was no way I had no way of finding out who they actually were, lived in one of the few luxury bungalows which had been reserved for higher echelons of the colony government colonial government. Red Fox was an important part of the British zoography and it was perhaps because of their spotting correlations that they had been Persecuted throughout their throughout their range, it is said that not a, a, 
difficult to know unfairly that one of the most peculiar things about the British is that we, we travel for miles and miles from track waste of finally waste to finally discover free fish swamp in the middle of nowhere only only to call the place Piccadilly. Something else to note about British abroad is that whenever they do go, the unspeakable was unfortunately tendency to assume the uneatable of the slightly possible opportunity. Hong Kong was no exception. Well, the activists have now ceased. The following hunt was a notable part of modern life between the wars in New Territory and some reasonable important zoological implications, Harlots wrote. The fox of plains and other hills of South China is a subspecies that is very similar to the European red fox and it's paler in colour and lacks the black spot side on the side of the nose. There's no there is more grey in the flanks and the fly, thighs four feet have less black and the red ton, tones are less from its more chestnut than the European red fox. Head body length twenty six inches, tail sixteen point five inches and tips of the protecting hair foxes occur both on Hong Kong, Ireland and New Territories through though they are not often seen the Chinese name is Hong Kuli Red Fox It was generally accepted however by the late by the mid 1960s although there have been a few isolated specimens in the wild parts of the New Territories on London Island there have been no foxes to speak of in the colony since before the Second World War. However, my mother's friend has seen one. And when you're eight years old, grown-ups of infallible the mystery of the mysterious fox of Victoria Park, as I fondly and slightly absurdly dubbed it, engrossed me for weeks, and I made a co- complete pain in the arse on myself. Interviewing, interviewing as many visitors and servants as I could, and asking of all, and asking all of them the same question: Have you seen a fox? This early experience of mystery animal investigations taught me some valuable lessons. People are on the whole idiots. If something doesn't interest them, they don't understand it. Stand why it should interest anybody else. They do their best to, to poke fun and generally deride anybody who's going to do, who's doing something they personally perceive as pointless. Sadly, as I discovered at the early age of eight, most people find find months of hunting to be completely boring. The natural world is no interest to, me, to most of the human race. You can only stand it if you're a media obscured rainforest. This is only stood if it's a media rainforest and it's had 
and habits are very safe. Yes, it's habits are very safe and controllable as they are on television screen in the corner of your sitting room. People on the whole are just interested in going into the woods to look for the strange thing for themselves. I found as a child that where, where is it? The edible when I include my teachers are happy to encourage me to collect butterflies, for example, the natural world is perfectly acceptable. When it, 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 when it's killed, pinned to the piece of cork, left to dry. Children are supposed to be seen and not heard. When a child takes it upon himself to wonder about taking impertinent asking impertinent questions from his elders and betters, he suddenly crossed over from being a general eccentric to being a threat. Sadly, this attitude is not characteristically reserved for children. As an adult monster hunter, I found exactly the same tends to happen. If I were to confine my zoology researches to creatures such as birds, butterflies and small animals, nobody would have a problem with it. It's only when my my one ventures away from the well-trodden paths of orthodox that one encounters a problem. As an adult, even when even when one is the director of the world's foremost monster hunting research organisation, and furthermore, one which has its presence as a natural hero who has been decorated by the monarch, monarch society, will hold will hold either deride you or treat you like a complete lunatic. Truly a month's hunter is without honour in his own land. The second lesson I learned to expect and one's best to understand cultural differences. Whereas the Europeans that I spoke to spoke to, for my quest for South China, either made setting remarks or told me to, in certain terms to go away, the Chinese were more interested. It to, they told me that they encounters with foxes of many, diff, of many different shapes and colours. I was too young that we, I was too young to understand. I, I thought that in this, it was in some peculiar inscrutable in oriental manner that they were being annoying as adults at the time as adults of my own race but only when I, I consulted my bible Hitquist that I realised how wrong I was being Hitquist pointed out that the Cantonese term fox had a number of different meanings he noted that local animals were named foxes by the Chinese the, lo- the little spotted civet known as Tin Li seven striped fox, the Chinese Kivit Sema Li three striped fox, the Mars Palm Sevit Li La five striped fox, and the ferret badger Nun Sol Li fruit eating little fox. It's beginning to make sense. However, it didn't go away go, go anywhere need to explain what it was that my mother's friend had seen and the animals that the Chinese people 
all the animals that Chinese people have spoken and described to me were. And no one apart from my mother's friend has seen anything even vaguely resembling a European red fox. Then came a breakthrough. With the innocence of an eight-year-old, I assumed it, that Herbert's book was a definite, definite account of the fauna of Hong Kong. I had realised the book had written eight years before I was born, and a lot had changed over the intervening, in, in, intervening years. In 1968, I was 16 years old. Oh, it was 16 years after Halibut had written his book. It transpired that Halibut hadn't been living in Hong Kong when writing the book. Was when writing of the book was completed. He had basically compiled from his free nature diaries from the articles that he'd written. From the previous prestigious journal, the Hong Kong Naturalist, that was published between 1929 and 1941, the information which I come upon there was therefore, in some instances, nearly 40 years out of date. This, to my mind, was a great discovery. It became something, just because something is written in a book, doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. After my new discoveries and revelations are pressed on, I like to think that, like a junior Sherlock Holmes, a bait, perhaps slightly precocious one, every afternoon in the summer, in, in the summer of 1968, I was trudged up and down the Park Peak Road to and from the ruins that once been the governor's summer Pace at the summit of Victoria Peace, I reveled in my newfound knowledge, all around me but exciting mysteries waiting to be solved. One afternoon, I spent over an hour watching a pair of hair-crusted dingoes, strange crow-like birds with peculiar lie-shaped tails, killing and eating a small king cobra. No afternoon, I was, I was sidetracked from my quest from the truth about Victoria Peak Fox when I saw, for the first time, first at any time on the island, a pair of barking deer running, startled into the thick undergrowth at the bottom of Mount Austin. I steadily followed them into the woods, and my heart pounded to, and my ear drum, it, uh, into the woods as my heart pounded into my eardrums. So I tracked into the headlong flight to get away from me. Two deer ran into a rotten log with, with their tiny hooves. It fell apart to reveal an entire universe of peculiar millipedes. Like long, deliberate armadillos came tumbling, tumbling out. Two local giant centipedes, Sergolia and Sergolia, bustled at me, waving their antenna menacingly. Most excitedly, there were small foot, 
were three small spade foot toads that glared at me cousinly with bloodless eyes. Unlike that, oh, unlike, not unlike that, when Olic scolded stouts into the door, shop doorway. Slopes of Mount Austin were covered with rodulous trees, some of which stretched to the height of 20 to 30 feet above me in the forest company, company and a increased babble of the family of white-faced lark. Laughing thrushes filled the tropical air. Above us was the, the, the azure blue sky. Two or three black-tailed kites, best known to the generations of army, in the army expats as skyhawks, because of the habit of circling above rubbish dumps and manure pits in search of small rodents circled lazily. Forcing myself to in the mode of self-discipline, I had to admit I, I, I seldom managed to achieve on a regular basis in the 35 years that I have followed, I continued my journey on, to, on, up, up the winding peak road towards the house where the Decided to take place. I promised to my mother under no circumstances would I be presumous as to bother her designated friend in person. Even at the age of eight, I understood the logic in that. After all, he already told me everything he knew, and he wasn't particularly interested anyway. He had seen a all he had seen was a very familiar animal, a red fox, a species with benefit of hindsight. I, I can see probably pursued on horseback over the Harum counties during his youth, peering at him over a low stone wall in his garden. He had no idea that there was anything exciting about the incident. To him, I was merely the slightly annoying boy he used to get in the way and ask pointless questions about something which he wasn't particularly interested in. However, I hadn't, promise, I hadn't promised my mother that I wasn't do any detective work in the, the location where the fox had seen. I feel sorry for the youth of today. Today, the Native Americans are people who have viewed an entire industry of homemade dream catchers, statues of great and home improvement courses in Native American spirituality. To my generation, to my generation, is something completely different. We saw them on television at least three nights a week, either killing or being killed by cowboys, or, like my hero Tonto, assisting a slightly inept no-ranger behaved like, like a 19th century analogue of Superman, fueled in my depth, in-depth knowledge of Indian love, which I have gathered from watching every episode after episode of the former, of former World Ranger and Bat Manson, I knew all what, I, what to do as I approached 
a bungalow. I stood in its own ground below. The line assumed the mantle of the expert native American woodsman and stealthily began to work out to my surroundings. Doing my best to get, to get into character, I reached into my school satchel, looked out the slightly looked at out the slightly battered red Indian headdress that my mother had given me as a Christmas present, and using one of the lipsticks which I polaroid from her dressing room table, I carefully played my wallpaint. Then, simply garbled, garbed, I made my way through the undergrowth on all fours. Stealthily, I crept along the outside of my perimeter wall. By this time, I was in such a heightened state of excitement, I was sure I could see a lurking, a lurking fox behind each of the bushes and trees. Sadly, I saw nothing. Whereas Red Indians, other cultural influences, will have, will, will, will walk upon me. I was an avid reading of Eden Blind's Secret Seven books, in which a small band of coaches, middle upper class, middle upper class children, wearing rings around the police and baffled crimes, and so baffling crimes by dint of crafty detective work. In an attempt to eliminate his second, his second set of heroes, I did my best to search for clues and foot, and following the footsteps of Secret Seven, and make a map of, of the crime scene. The fact that there wasn't been a crime was no peculiar obstacle to me. My grandfather gave me a compass that was worn, on, that was worn on my wrist like a watch, which watch, which watch. It had not worked. It had never worked. And I had no idea how to take a common, take a compass bearing. But after all my few items of quasi-centric equipment, I was determined to make myself make use of it. I paced the length of breadth of the garden perimeter. Every few yards, I consulted my specifically useless compass in vain hope that I would be able to extrapolate some data from it. After half an hour's work, I created a crude and with hindsight completely useless map, which I was very proud and brought it, and brought it home in triumph to the corner of my bedroom, where I fondly, which I fondly called my laboratory. Here I kept my microscope, my natural history books, my shell and butterfly collections and various creatures imprisoned in a variety of makeshift aquarius. If you wish to read more, you can get Monster Hunter from on Amazon. Look it up, folks.
It's a good book to read. Thank you very much. Bye.